we have a certain fixed perspective about how things should function once we learn about them, once we know about their function. You might have heard of this as the hammer-nail syndrome. When we have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, when we have a certain way of collaborating, we tend to impose that way of collaborating on all other contexts. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of differing topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. My guest today is Dr. Gleb Sapersky, who is an internationally renowned thought leader in future-proofing and cognitive bias risk management. He serves as the CEO of a boutique future-proofing consultancy, Disaster Avoidance Experts, which specializes in helping forward-looking leaders avoid dangerous threats and missed opportunities. A best-selling author, he has written three books, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Biases and Build Better Relationships, and returning to the office and leading a hybrid and remote teams, a manual on benchmarking to the best practices for competitive advantage. And this will be the topic of our conversation today. And Gleb's books have been translated into Chinese, Korean, German, Russian, Polish, and many other languages. Gleb's cutting edge thought leadership was featured in over 550 articles and 450 interviews in prominent venues. They include Fortune, USA Today, Inc. Magazine, CBS News, Time, Business Insider, Government Executive, The Chronicle of Philanthropy, Fast Company, and elsewhere. His expertise comes from over 20 years of consulting, coaching, and speaking and training for mid-sized and large organizations ranging from AFLAC, can you say AFLAC without doing the duck sound? I don't think so, to Xerox. It also comes from his research background as a behavioral scientist with over 15 years in academia. After getting his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, he served as a professor at The Ohio State University. He lives currently in Columbus, Ohio, Go Bucks, and in his free time, he makes sure to spend abundant quality time with his wife to avoid his personal life turning into a disaster. Well done, Gleb, well done. You can contact him at Gleb at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com and follow him on a variety of social media platforms like LinkedIn, Twitter, 
Instagram, Facebook, Medium, YouTube, and his RSS feed. By searching his name, Kaleb Sapersky, and his last name is spelled T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. And to get a free copy of his assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace by signing up for his free Wise Decision Maker course at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com slash newsletter. Now, before we get to the interview, just a few housekeeping items. Off script, Mastering the Art of Business Improv is available for purchase in paperback. And if you use this URL, offscriptimprov.com, you'll be redirected to the book site on Amazon. The book will be available on Kindle on November 3rd. Remember to subscribe to this podcast and share this podcast episode with a friend. I would greatly appreciate if you'd leave a review of this show wherever you download your podcasts from. I greatly appreciate your support. Also, please visit my YouTube channel, The Accidental Accountant, where you can see previous podcast video episodes, along with this one in the coming weeks. And while you're there, just hit the subscribe button so you won't miss any updates. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders. A story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. Would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and certified speaking professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in person and on site at your location or at an off-site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now, let's get to the interview with Dr. Glenn. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I have a returning guest, and I'm real excited that Dr. Club contacted me about his new book and uh, wanted to see if he can get time on my podcast. And I said, absolutely. And the title of the new book is Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, a Manual on Benchmarking to Best Practices for Competitive Advantage. And that title in itself has a lot in it, but there's a lot to this. Dr. Kleb. So first and foremost, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time on my podcast. Thank you for welcoming me, Peter. Really appreciate it. So this is interesting. I this whole concept of what you're talking about is it's part of this whole this as people have described it, the great resignation. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm so curious about this. So 
what I know you've done a, a tremendous amount of research on this topic. Can you share some of those statistics with, with the audience? Happy to. So yes, it's the great resignation. But when we're thinking about this great resignation, what I strongly encourage, and I helped 17 companies and organizations transition back to the office in this context. So I encourage them not to think of this as a pain point, but as a serious opportunity to seize competitive advantage. And we'll talk about how to do that. But you don't want to think of this simply as a huge pain point to avoid, because you want to think of it as an opportunity, you'll get much further. But let's talk about the statistics. So when we look at the statistics, I talked in the book, I did a meta-analysis of eight major surveys from organizations like the Harvard Business School and the Society for Human Resource Management. So mm -hmm. organizations that don't have a particular stake in the outcome, major <laughs> surveys. And what they found was that there's a very strong desire for people to have substantial remote work. So the surveys on average found that anywhere from 80 to 85%, depending on the survey of the respondents, want substantial remote work, at least half the work week. 25 to 35% of all respondents want full-time remote work. Only something like 10 to 20% of respondents want full-time in the office. So this is very clear where the future is heading. The future is going to be because the, the remaining people, 55 to 65% want hybrid. So that is really where the future is heading. And we'll talk about what hybrid means. Now, what we need to understand is that this is something people really want. It's not like they're just saying it. People really want this. So we see that in the surveys, anywhere from 40 to 55% of the respondents would be willing to leave a company if they're not given their preferred flexible work schedule. And over 70%, 70 to 80% are more likely to stay. And this is the critical factor. People are perceiving flexibility as more important than health care, insurance benefits, and other sort of typical perks and benefits. Flexibility is the number one thing that people want in the future, in right now, the future of work. So that is fundamentally important. They're willing to give up serious money for it. So we see that people are, well, people who'd want to go back to the office are not willing to give up any money for it, but it ranges from, they're willing to give up 20 to 30% of their salary for full-time remote work, for people who want full-time remote work. So that's a lot of money that people are willing to give up to get the kind of flexible schedule that they want. So we're seeing very clear indicators. And there's other research I can talk about, but I want to get, let you get an award sideways. <laughs> that's okay. I was thinking, I, I came across an article uh, that PwC has now, as a per policy, if you were to work full-time remote, you can. And this is only for the, the U.S. Uh, contingency, the U.S. employees. The interesting thing I found out about, uh, as I was reading this article, that if you decide that you want to work remotely, you can you can live anywhere. However, your pay may be cut mm -hmm. if you're living in a place that has a lower cost of living than where you currently are, or, or you know, something like New York City. If you're working in New York and you decide to go out into the the country and, and live. Yeah, be prepared to they're going to cut your pay on that. Yeah. I think it's fair. Sure. So happy to talk about that. So again, I helped 17 organizations transition, and this is definitely a consideration. COLA, cost of living adjustment pay. Mm -hmm. Now, I strongly don't recommend that organizations actively cut the pay of people who are remote, but I do recommend that there is a cost of living adjustment, which needs to, of course, be fair to people. Mm -hmm. 
And right. so what I recommend you know, it takes place is that this is addressed through future promotions. So they get less of a promotion, less of bonuses and so on in the future, depending on the cost of living. So that is something that's fair, but people having their pay cut is likely to lead to them being unhappy and then quite possibly resigning. So, so this is a, something for companies to be seriously thinking about. So that's one dynamic in terms of pay. Another thing I talk about to companies in terms of pay that actually surprisingly few companies do, 25% apparently, is actually funding people's home offices. So funding yeah. people's home offices is incredibly important. Uh, and what I usually recommend companies do is do something like 3,000 for an initial transition and then 2,000 for each year afterward with additional 500 for working parents. And this is for everything from you know, laptop to lighting, to microphones, to camera, ergonomic furniture, room separator, soundproofing, all of that sort of stuff and stipends for internet and so on. This is really important because the future is going to be mostly hybrid. So realistically speaking, most people will be coming in one to two days a week. You know, there'll be some proportion that's going to be fully remote, maybe 10 to 20% of your workforce. The rest is going to be coming in one to two days a week. That means that the large majority of employees are going to do their work at home. So you want to maximize their productivity, comfort, engagement, and morale at home. For that, they need to have well-equipped offices. And that's why companies are going to be doing so much better off if they fund the home offices of their employees. Uh, I agree. In the book you write, is chapter three, mental blind spots leading to disastrous decisions on returning to the work, to the office. Talk about that, these these mental blind spots that, that uh, CEOs are just not seeing because they're blind spots. Right, exactly. That's what blind spots are. <laughs> so, now, what, more than you talk about blind spots, I talk about cognitive biases. I know people refer to different things. So I'm talking about specifically very academic research, clear academic research on why our brain is miswired. So cognitive biases are dangerous judgment errors that stem from the wiring of our brain. Our brain is not adapted to the modern environment. If you think about it, the internet has been around since the 1990s, right? We haven't had time to evolve for it. Our intuitions, our emotions, our reactions, our feelings, our gut reaction is wired for the savanna environment. And we lived in small tribes of 50 people to 150 people. We had to survive based on the fight or flight reflex. Mm -hmm. So this is not the modern environment that we live in, but that's what we're wired for. As a result, we make a series of dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases. And you can take a look at the list of cognitive biases on Wikipedia. There's over a hundred of them. I have a book out on this topic called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders mm -hmm. Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, which is what uh, Peter and I discussed in the previous yep. episode. Mm -hmm. So that is something that you can check out if you want to learn more about the general cognitive biases. But specifically to returning to the office, what I talk about in my new book, Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, there are several cognitive biases that are very dangerous for leaders. And leaders we see are making terrible decisions even in the highest level companies. Now, Google was for many months saying that when vaccine is widely available, they'll force everyone to go back to the office. And once vaccine became widely available, Google, people at Google started complaining and resigning and leaving elsewhere. And Google had to change its tune on June 5th, so long before the Delta surge, and say that, you know, we screwed up, and I'm sorry, on May 5th, and we screwed up, that was a problem, we'll let up to 20% of our workforce work fully remotely because uh, they were losing billions and billions of dollars from employees leaving and cost of replacing them is pretty high because, you know, tech people. Same thing on June 10th, 
happened to Amazon, you know, another trillion dollar company. And then on June 24th, Uber, again, changing their tune. So we see that top leaders at the very highest levels are making pretty bad, bad decisions. And why is that? Well, it's because of these cognitive biases. You know, it's not because they lack data. It's not because they lack decision-making prowess. You know, they mm -hmm. run the biggest companies we have here in the United States. And of course, that means in the world. So what ha is happening is that these leaders are falling into several blind spots. One of the biggest ones is called the status quo bias. So what's the status quo bias? The status quo bias refers to us having a desire to maintain or get back to something that we perceive as the right way of doing things, functioning, being. So the status quo. Now, in the Savannah environment, the ancient Savannah environment, was very important for us to maintain the status quo. It was a very precarious environment. So mm -hmm. any threats to our survival would be serious dangers and changing the status quo was likely to lead us to not survive. Therefore, we have a strong drive to get back to the status quo. Mm -hmm. Similarly, leaders like the leaders of Google and Amazon have a strong drive to get back to the status quo that they perceive as successful, the office. They want to be successful. They want to be in control. They want to be surrounded by their followers. They like that. They feel comfortable and they feel that that's how they know how to lead. And of course, that's a big, big problem. So that's one, the status quo bias. Another one is called the false consensus effect. So the false consensus effect, that's where leaders believe that others in their tribe, going back to the tribalism in the Savannah, share the same opinions as they do. So the leaders at Amazon and, App and uh, Google and Uber believe that their employees generally share the same opinions and that they'll, you know, that what they're saying about not wanting to go back to the office is not serious. You know, I was working for a consulting for a large peer executive group of many, many thousands of peer executives across the United States and the globe. And they did a survey of their membership and they found that, and this is for middle market companies, so companies from 50 to 5,000 people. And they found that of these companies, only 44% did surveys of their employees on returning to the workplace. Only 44%. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yes. that's, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You know, they have these false beliefs. So this about what their employees want, this is a huge problem. So you, we tend to have too much of a belief about what others who are in our tribe, quote unquote, share our perspective. So that's a big problem. So false consent effect. And related to that is the confirmation bias. How do we look for information? We look for information in a way that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So leaders, when I talk to them, when I consult before we do the surveys, it, what often happens is that the CEO talks to the C-suite, the C-suite talks to the senior VPs and kind of stops there. They mm -hmm. all agree that they want to go back to the office and you know that's, that's a big problem. And the final thing I want to talk about that's very serious is called functional fixedness. Functional fixedness. We have a certain fixed perspective about how things should function once we learn about them, once we know about their function. You might have heard of this as the hammer-nail syndrome. When we have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, when we have a certain way of collaborating, we tend to impose that way of collaborating on all other contexts. For example, in, the March, in March 2020, the lockdowns happened, and companies overwhelmingly imposed their ways of collaborating on virtual context. They're in office ways of collaborating. And it's understandable immediately, you know, in a week, two weeks, three weeks, but clearly this has gone, the pandemic has gone on, <laughs> you know, for 
over a year, you know, 18 months, and they're still collaborating exactly the same ways that they started collaborating in March 2020. You can see that from Zoom happy hours. Zoom happy hours are not a fun thing. We By now, we have research. Well, we had research earlier that they were not great, and we have clear research that they cause disengagement. So by the fall of 2020, we had research that they actually cause disengagement, the opposite of what they're supposed to do, which is cause engagement with teams and so on. But leaders kept doing them and doing them and doing them, and that's not a good idea. And we have a lot of other problems where leaders did not strategically adapt their companies, their organizations to the new environment. Instead, they just kept going with what they know instead of strategically adapting to the future. And I see the same things happening. So that's why my book is titled Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. I'm seeing the same things happen in the hybrid environment. You need to lead in a very different way for a hybrid workplace. And leaders are not figuring that out and they're leading in the same old way that they led in fully in office environments. I've got a client in uh, Boston, uh, a CPA firm, and prior to the pandemic, they were going to build without more space. They needed more space. The pandemic hit, and then they said, well, we need to slow this down. And then they start surveying their workforce and asking them, when it comes to time, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to come back? Do you want to work remotely? And now they've created this misplaced workforce where you can work remotely. I think, I think it's and you're going to talk about it here in a second. They created a very nice hybrid workforce, and they had to go back to the architects and say, you know, we don't need to build this out. We need to condense it some because we're not going to need all this other than this footprint. To me, that's a very progressive firm because they had they were part of that 44% who actually did survey their people. Mm -hmm. uh, now you correct me if I'm wrong, and this was told to me third hand. You may know that, but apparently uh, Jamie Diamond came out publicly and said we're all going back to the office mm -hmm. yeah okay that mentality is probably not working very well for him right now no no it's not very, <laughs> working very well at all i actually have uh, first-hand information from some of the investment bankers at the company who who quit and they went to work for alternative companies either citigroup so which is kind of a major investment bank that chose not to force its employees back to the office mm -hmm. or smaller investment firms so there's plenty of opportunities. You know, this is what the great resignation is about, where there are plenty of opportunities for people who want to work fully remotely to find a job, the kind of people who can do that. We have about 50% of the American workforce who can work fully remotely. And this is the folks that we're talking about. And right now, if they're made to go back to the office, we see that about 25 to 35% want full-time remote. Well, of that proportion, a large proportion will not accept going back to the office. When we look at how people moving during the pandemic, we know that over 20% of people moved during the pandemic away from their office. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they're going to move back to the office. <laughs> right, right. This is not uh, the kind of the future. So what we're seeing is that really terrible decision-making and that top people, the ones who have options, the ones who have flexibility, especially believing, which is why Google and Amazon, Uber changed their minds, which cost them billions of dollars to change, of course, their plans and you know, lost employees and all of that. But we're seeing that. And some are, like Jimmy Diamond, are still sort of staying stubborn. <laughs> yeah, good, 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 good way to describe it, staying stubborn. I, I, kind, of, I kind of word it this way. Um, his ego is getting in the way of his thought process. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Very so, much so. Because you have to admit that you're wrong. 
And that is a difficult thing to do for people who are not trained in admitting the Chirong, who are not trained in debiasing. So that's kind of what my work is about. How do you debias? How do you defeat these cognitive biases? Mm -hmm. One of the techniques that you need to learn is learning to love figuring out that you're wrong, because then you can be right. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a difficult mental skill to develop. It's not an easy thing to do to acknowledge and welcome being wrong because nobody wants to intuitively be wrong. Our intuitions lead us in the wrong direction on this topic. So we need to overcome our intuitions and overcoming our intuitions, like just like changing any mental habit is a pretty difficult thing to do. So that is one of the difficult things to do that you need to do if you're going to be a really successful business leader. So you, you talk about the competitive advantage and is that competitive advantage basically a hybrid model? Yes. So what you want to look for in the future. So the 17 companies that I helped transition back to the office, 16 of them adopted a hybrid first model. And okay. what that means, and the team led hybrid first model. So the specific hybrid model where you don't just go from the top down. So what happened with Apple, for example, Apple just said from the top down, we're going to come back Monday, Tuesdays and Thursdays, everyone will come back. This is a serious problem because this kind of top-down approach, not only is it going to be a problem who, for people who want to work full-time remotely, and you see people at Apple rebelling, actively writing letters, complaining, and it's very rare for Apple. You know, It's a very mm -hmm. compliant workforce usually and very loyal. And so you see these tech people rebelling at Apple is a big, big, unusual dynamic. And they're saying, you know, want, we want to work fully remotely and also we want to choose the time that we go back. You know, having everyone go back on the same schedule, it's obviously a bad use of space. So when your architectural firm, that's uh, your client, has mm -hmm. decided that we want to condense space, it's also going to be because they uh, get their people to, who want to come in that hybrid schedule to not come in on the same days rather than what right. Apple is doing, right? Kind of bad, bad use of uh, space. That's one dynamic. And then the other dynamic is you want to be really thinking about, okay, why not let team leaders choose? That's the right, that's where you want the authority. You want to push it down because team leads, the leaders, lower level supervisors of rank and file members of your employees, of your staff are the ones best positioned to know what their team needs. So each team has certain different needs and different dynamics. And it does not all the people need to be there at the same time. And they don't need to be there for the same length of time. As a default, a hybrid first model, team-led model, is one day a week for everyone to come in. Now, one day a week is fine for team cohesion, collaboration, and you know that once a week meeting for everyone who is part of the team. It also encourages it facilitates and strongly encourages having 10 to 20, 30, depending on the kind of work you do, of your workforce be fully remote. So allowing people who want to be fully remote to be fully remote unless they are unable to do so effectively. Now, what does it mean to do so effectively? People who want to be fully remote, they need to understand that they need to be taking initiative, they need to be organized, they need to be disciplined, and they need to be good self-advocates because there are career issues associated with being fully remote when other members of your team are hybrid. So you need to be aware of that and be a good advocate for yourself in the team if you you know, want to have a good career. So there are definitely things that need to be addressed and not everyone is right for a fully remote role. So most people are going to be best served by coming in for at least one day a week. And you don't want to do too much. So then you want to train the supervisors on and give them these broad guidelines, say that encouraging them to let people who can do so to work fully remote, 
and then everyone else to come back as a default, coming to the office one day a week on different days so you don't have too much occupancy on the same day and you can cut down your office space and real estate costs. And then you want to train these team leaders on how do they make their decisions. So okay. you want to, how do, they, how do you make a decision on when to come in? If you don't train them, they'll fall into status quo bias and false consensus effect, confirmation bias, all the other stuff that we talked about. So you want to train them on that. You also want to train them on how to work effectively. And my book talks about how to collaborate effectively, innovate effectively, and do performance reviews effectively in hybrid settings and fully remote settings. So you want to train them on these before they make a decision on how to come back. How many people, how often to come back? And then you want to give them criteria. When you come back, you want to come back only based on the amount of collaboration your team does. Why is that? Well, because individual tasks are overwhelmingly better done at home. People are 20 to 30% more productive on their individual tasks at home. Overall, we're actually more productive at home, something like 10 to 14% more productive across all of our tasks. The collaborative tasks are kind of a wash. Some are more productive at home, some are more productive in the office. And so there is definitely an argument to be made to do some collaborative tasks in the office. For individual tasks, it's way better to do them at home. You don't have nearly as many distractions. You're more focused. You can concentrate. Or if you like the buzz of other people doing workarounds, you can go to a co-working space, or you can even go to the office if you want that, or you can go to a coffee shop or something like that, mm -hmm. depending on your preferences. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of a much better place to do your individual tasks without being forced to come into the office. And so you want that balance. You want to any team leads, those supervisors who want people to come in more than one day a week to submit a plan justifying how, based on their amount of collaborative work, why they should be doing more than one day a week in the office. That's quite interesting. Um... You think, because this is the, the future of work, do you think eventually we'll get most organizations to buy into this uh, hybrid type of an approach or begin to go down this path who are still resisting it today? I would be very surprised if we don't because they will be left behind in terms of getting talent. You know, people are our greatest resource. That's that's a very accurate phrase. Mm -hmm. You know, your systems can be competed away, your products, your ideas. It's people who are your greatest resource, your people and your culture. Mm -hmm. If you are not going to be satisfying your people, the ones who can work fully remotely, mm -hmm. if you're not going to be satisfying them, A, they will leave to go elsewhere. B, you will have a bad culture <laughs> because people will be unhappy if they stay. You know, the ones who can't find a job elsewhere will not be the best people. <laughs> so over time, the companies that are trying to force their employees back to the office are going to be that uh, and nine to five, Monday through Friday, nine to five, back to the office, which is you know, not having a hybrid model. These are the companies that will definitely be left behind. And it's very sad. And you know, you're seeing some really good companies. Xerox is one example, which is forcing its tech employees back to the office and it's hemorrhaging people. And you know, it's a big, big problem for Xerox. Apple is, you know, people are leaving Apple. People are leaving these companies. And it's you know not a good fate for these people, besides the investment banks, Goldman Sachs and so on that we talked about. It's kind of interesting because for, for years, I, I'll ask my audiences when I'm speaking, what, what business are you in? And they give me everything from, you know, sales or auditing, taxation. And I just look at, well, that's a byproduct of the business that you're in. And I get them kind of mad. And I basically say, you're in the people business, first and foremost. Without people, you have no business, which is 
simplistic in its thought. I mean, if I treat my people well, they will stay. If I treat them like crap, they're going to leave. But we, we've, we've, and I still think, I think the industrial age, we were viewed as a number, a replaceable person. That even, even that is wrong. Uh, I, I've always contended that, you know, we're in the people business. But if you treat your people well, they're going to respond. I don't know. But I just get so frustrated. Like, why don't these CEOs understand this simple, easy concept? It's just the way that people are. Well, they are egoistic and they tend to want, I mean, especially CEOs, you see a lot of CEOs who are confident, the more confident the CEOs, the less well their company performs. And, and that there are studies measuring confidence by the kind mm -hmm. of statements they make and media interviews, the, the number of media interviews they do, their company performance tends to suffer, the more confident that they appear in public statements. But the leaders who are desirable, who are desired, are usually the leaders who are more confident because it matches that alpha monkey male persona from the Savannah environment. So they have worse performance, but they match our stereotypes. So they play into our biases of what a strong and confident leader should be. And so these leaders tend to keep moving up, even though their companies do less well. <laughs> and, uh, and so they're, they don't have an incentive to not have that strong, confidence, arrogant, unempathetic perspective toward people. Now, if they want the company to perform well, they do, but that's not something that many leaders really, uh, who are the kind of people who you're talking about, right, right. they really care about. They don't really care about the company. They yeah. care about themselves and their salary. I couldn't have said it any better there, but that's exactly what it is. And as I, as I think about this, but it's got to, it has taken it's taken notice because you 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 mentioned well we made this decision uh, at Google I know it was the one and, and oh no we made a bad decision they admitted to it and, and reversed that I hope that some of these other companies really start because the numbers are starting to get staggering on this quote unquote resignation and it's it's more than just remote working but that seems to be a big part of why we see this mass exodus. I don't know what, so, so as, as we wrap up, what if, I mean, you've given a lot of great advice and, and if you had to give them one thing, what's the one piece of advice you'd give my audience as we're dealing with this? What do we do as it relates to the future of work? What should we do? You should not trust your instincts. Your instincts. <laughs> <laughs> well, because of the biases that you were talking about, right? Exactly. So your instincts are going to be lying to you about the future of work. You should not be trusting your instincts. You should really be focusing on the data and you should be analyzing how the cognitive biases that I talked about might be impacting your instincts, not trusting them, not going with your intuition, looking at the data, looking at what your employees want, understanding that, how, like you said, Peter, that your people are driving the success of your company. Your people are the key resource and you want to satisfy them, make them happy, make them engaged. And because otherwise, you know, you're going, you're in a race for the best people and you will not have the best people remaining if you don't make your people happy. So this is something that you want to go against your instincts and ground the future of work. And you want to realize that your instincts are based on a backward perspective, on a backward looking perspective mm -hmm. 
because the future of work, we are in a really key disruptive inflection on the future of work. And you want to see this as an opportunity to succeed in the future rather than as a huge pain point. And in order to succeed, you need to go against your instincts, which are obviously going to be based on your past experience. About dealing with uh, the uncomfortable, having to go against my instincts, but that's that's that was so well put. Uh, how can people find you? How can they contact you? Sure. Well, my book, Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams Benchmarking to Best Practices for Competitive Advantage, is available on Amazon. So check that out. And for me, myself, you can check out my resources at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. That's disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, podcasts, videocasts, online courses, books, of course, coaching, training, speaking, all that sort of good stuff. Check out especially disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a course on future-proofing yourself against the, this, against our increasingly disrupted future and making the best decisions. That's, again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Before I let you go, what's your next book you're working on? <laughs> I am right now spending my time on helping leaders make the best decisions about returning to the office. Okay. Not sure what the, my next book will be on, but right now, that, this is what I'm focusing on. Very well, very well put. Well, Glenn, thank you so very much. It's a, it's a pleasure always to see you. I love this conversation. Uh, and the audience, go get his book. Uh, it, it's It's got a lot of helpful tips in there. And think about going against your instincts. I, I can't, I just, I get tickled when I say that, <laughs> but, but, it, but it's true. Think about going against your instincts and, and, and make that a daily habit, especially as related to this topic and take, take yourself out of your comfort zone and get uncomfortable for a while. So with that, with that being said, thank you very much. Always appreciate it, Gleb, and I'm sure we will uh, talk again soon on my podcast. Thank you again, Peter. I want to thank Gleb for his time in discussing his book, Returning to the Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, a manual on benchmarking to best practices for competitive advantage and the tips that he provided. I will conclude with an improv quote that's fitting for this interview. It was also fitting with, for the interview with Brian Comerford. And that is, improv takes place in the present tense. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.